You know, my dad was a pastor, and um, he hated the title reverend. Uh, his name was Gordon. I remember one time he got this piece of mail to, to the Rabbi Gordon Patav Hay. And he was so disgusted with that. Uh, how can I remember that? But I don't know what I had for breakfast this morning. Man. Well, it's Labor Day weekend. Can you believe it? September's here. Christmas is right around the corner. And uh, the next century is coming. Um, man, it goes fast. Uh, I just want to kind of remind us where we've been this year. Uh, I, I was starting to think it over and think, well, we just did that series on Revelation. Oh, that was back in January. But we started out with a study of Revelation in order to see the big picture of how Jesus wins in the end. And out of that, we did a short series on Can I Get a Witness? Just how every aspect of our lives is a witness to the reality of Jesus Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then we looked at Jonah, who was a lousy witness. Um, And the reason why he was a lousy witness is because he considered the Ninevites as unworthy and unfit of God's grace and God's salvation. And so that took us into the series that will conclude today, excuse me, how every person is made in the image of God, and therefore God has granted them dignity and value, as Jonah did not do with the Ninevites. And so today we wrap up this series. Uh, next week we begin an in-depth study of 2 Corinthians. We're going to slow down and take a little longer, so I would encourage you to start reading 2 Corinthians. If you want to prepare for next Sunday's message, read verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1. I say we're going to slow down. Todd will kick that series off next week, and I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, But let's review and summarize where we've been over the last five weeks in this series, Being Human. Christian asked a couple of questions to get us started, and the first question is, what does it mean to be human? It means that humans, and only humans, are made in the image of God. So what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, the answer is it's not what we do, but it's who we are. The image of God refers to God's intention to manifest his presence through humans on earth. Every human, every race, every color, every language and culture and size and shape and ethnicity, the unborn, the elderly, the the severely disabled, the comatose, the homeless, the refugee, every single human in some way manifests the presence of God here on earth. Now, this impacts our theology, or it should impact our theology of of, of many issues facing us today, such as abortion and euthanasia and gender identity and immigration and all these issues that are such political hot buttons. We should look at those through the lens of every human being as being made in the image of God. And we continue to learn that even though every person is made in the image of God, only Jesus is the perfect image of God, and he reveals what we as humans were intended to be. Through his work of saving us from sin, through the Holy Spirit coming to indwell us, we can now live out what it means to be made in the image of God because we have the Holy Spirit living in us. And then two weeks ago, Christian shared how we are to seek after God's vision of the good life. He used the term aesthetic to describe what is good and true and beautiful in life. Remember that? No. Okay. 
Let's, let's, let's play the video of Christian's sermon. <clears throat> I'm going to talk a lot about that today, so we need to be on track. We as followers of Jesus are to pursue God's vision of what is good and true and beautiful and not pursue our own vision because we have our own ideas of what the good life is, what is good and true and beautiful. And I'm going to use that term, the good life, to talk about uh, this aesthetic. And I I know it's a culturally culturally loaded term that we think of, oh, the good life is the American dream. Uh, 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 Three cars, or or, or, yeah, three-bedroom house, two-car garage, two-and-a-half kids, the whole American dream thing. But that's not what I mean by the good life today. It's not how I'm using it. Uh, The good life is right there. Our vision of what we perceive to be good and true and beautiful in life. And then last week, Todd hit it hard in that we need to be the church by living in light of God's view of the good life. That's what the church does. We live live in light of God's definition and God's view of the good life, not our own. And by doing that, by living that way, we bend culture a little bit at a time toward God's view of the good life. Todd used this illustration. I'm going to expand on it. Think of culture, if you will, as a straight steel bar and it needs to be bent into a U-shape. That's just a random metaphor. But each act of moving the kingdom forward makes a little dent. It's like a hammer hitting that steel bar to gradually bend it. Each, each act of moving the kingdom forward, of living out our lives for Jesus, of living in view of God's definition of the good life, bends that bar a little bit more. And it makes a little dent in the fallen, sinful world that we live in. And now today, we're going to see how seeking our own definition of the good life leads to the fragmentation of culture. When we pursue our own idea of what is good and right and true and beautiful, culture fragments. Because we all have different views of what that is. Seeking God's definition of the good life, of what is good and right and true and beautiful, leads to unity. We fragment when we pursue our own vision. We unite when we pursue God's vision. And so that second point there, our whole existence is about living out God's vision of the good life in order to make his name great. Because when we live according to our own definition, whose name are we making great? Our own. Me. Ourselves. So let's talk about these two contrasting visions or definitions of how we see the good and the true and the beautiful in life. We all have our own perceptions. Uh, It could include things like uh, being happy and content in my job. What is good and right and true for me is being happy in my job. Or never getting sick or never suffering. Uh, A college classmate of mine just was diagnosed with mantle cell lymphoma. I don't even know what that is, but it's bad. I'm sure that wasn't his vision of the good life. But apparently it's God's vision of the good life for him. Maybe my vision is to make enough money so we can take exotic vacations or have kids that always obey me. How many of us as parents would like the definition of good life to include that? Always obedient children. I see those hands, yes. 
or have a marriage that makes me happy and meets my needs? Don't raise your hands because your spouse is sitting next to you. But how many of us have that vision of what the good life is? Pursue an education so I can get a good career, so I can make a lot of money. That's the good life. Living where I want to live. My vision of the good life was to live in Alaska for the rest of my life. To me, that was good and right and true and beautiful. It wasn't God's vision. Our own vision of the good life is pretty simple to summarize in three words. Me, me, me. Right? But we are to live out and seek to bring about God's vision for what is good and true and beautiful. And that is all people of all cultures of all time uniting under the good rule of Jesus. Jesus first, Jesus last, Jesus only. What a beautiful name it is. I make my decisions, I spend my money, I live where I live, all for his glory and his purposes, regardless of the impact on me and my wants and me, me, me. God's vision for the world is to be one great Christ-worshiping unified people. Every nation, every tribe, every language, every tongue, every ethnicity, every gender, everybody worshiping him. And we are to live our lives on this earth as we walk the path in such a way to bring that about. We never will completely. But we live that way. We make dents in this steel bar of culture trying to bend it. And sometimes our dents are tiny, but they still count. Ephesians 1.10 says this, or 9 and 10 says, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. To unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things in earth. Everything united under the good rule of Jesus. That's the, the ultimate final goal of all history is this uniting of all things in Jesus and, and we as followers of him live in such a way to bend our will and bend our own vision of the good life to his will and his vision of the good life. We can contrast these two visions uh, with C.S. Lewis's famous quote. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, which is often our view of the good life. We think of these things, if I had this, if I had ambition, if sex, whatever, these things, this is the good life, according to us. He goes on, when infinite joy is offered us, which is God's vision of the good life. When infinite joy is offered us, we're like, we're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because we can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. If we settle for our own vision and definition of the good life, we are way too easily pleased. Because even though God's vision requires sacrifice, requires dying to self, requires giving up some of our dreams, what God replaces it with, what his vision is, is so much bigger and better and more beautiful. Our vision of the good life is just a mud pie. His is a holiday at the beach. 
John Piper says this, if we lose any or all the things this world can offer, we will not lose our joy or our treasure or our life because Christ is our joy and our treasure and our life. And we will never lose him. So, so what happens when we insist on our own vision of the good life instead of God's? What, what happens when we demand to get our own way and our own will and our own dreams and our own ideas? Well, quite the opposite of uniting under the good rule of Jesus. When we live for ourselves, we divide, we fragment, we fight, we disagree, we clash. We do what James describes in James 4, 1 and 2. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Your passions, your, your desires, what you want? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And we fragment into these little tiny islands of selfishness. Fragmentation, here's a definition. It's the process or state of breaking or being broken into small or separate parts. The breaking of society into a collection of interest groups. It is disunity. It's selfish living. It's contrary to what God intended life to be. Ever since Cain did not see eye to eye with his own brother Abel and murdered him, our cultures and our peoples have been fragmenting into these seemingly irreconcilable differences. Right up until this very hour, I don't need to tell you, I'm going to tell you, but I don't need to tell you that uh, there is war and there is hatred all over the place. We have Republicans versus Democrats. We could stop right there with fragmentation. We have the Sunni Muslims versus the the Shiite Muslims. We have the Arabs versus the Jews. We have blue-collar versus white-collar, men versus women, ranchers versus farmers, whites versus blacks, loud music versus soft music, skinny jeans versus bell-bottoms, Ford versus Chevy. When I was in junior high school, we carpooled to a Christian school. It was about 45 minutes away, and this other kid and I would argue incessantly every day on the way to school and every day on the way back from school on the merits of Ford versus Chevy. I was a Chevy guy, he was the Ford guy. I made it very clear that Ford stands for fix on road dead, or found on road dead, fix or repair daily, and, and we, would just, we, would, we were divided and fragmented over this issue. And yes, today I drive a Ford pickup truck. So, <laughs> see how that fragmentation worked out. But everywhere you look, it's something versus something else. Our culture is fragmented. Our world is fragmented. Peoples can't get along, so they go to war. There's, there's ethnic cleansing. There's, there's all this hate because we have different definitions of what the good life is. We take one way of being human and we say, that's the best way. And then we marginalize those who don't fit our own definition of the good life. We don't treat them with the dignity that God has granted them by virtue of being created in the image of God. It's exactly what Jonah did with the Ninevites. He looked at them and he said, you don't, you don't fit my definition of what is good and right and true and beautiful. Being Jewish is, and you're not 
fact, you hate Jews. And so I hate you, and I don't want you to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. I don't want you to hear the gospel. I don't want you to be saved. And when God granted them repentance, he was really ticked off. Fragmented. But we also fragment in personal relationships. Some consider those who wear a certain type of clothing to be less human than others. Some consider those who have a a certain body type to, to be less human than others. And so we have bullying and we have clicks and we have shaming. Some of you out there consider iPhone users less human than Android users. And let me just say, get over yourselves, right? iPhone users? Wow, are you guys all Androids? Man. Roommates, housemates fragment because they have different views of how clean the house should be in order to live the good life. And so they fight and they disagree and they argue. Married couples, we fragment because we have differing views of the good life. Dawn and I got into this this discussion last night. And, and it was just because I've been preparing this, it was just like interesting. It's like, you know what? We each have a different view of what is good and right and true and beautiful, and it's clashing right here, right now. <laughs> we, we were counseling a couple a while back, and it's not, you're not here, so I'm not telling anybody's stories. But they got into this major fight, and, and, and I want you to hear this issue. I mean, obviously, none of us have ever been this silly or, or trivial, but um, the husband took his wife's car out. Uh, without asking her, and filled it with gas and got it washed because they were planning, he was planning to take it to an event that night. Well, when she found out, she was livid because she didn't like him driving her car, and she thought he knew that. And she was going to try a different car wash in town because she didn't like the one they usually go to. And she thought they were taking his car to the event that night. Now think about this. They each had a different view of the good life. They each had a different view of what is good and right and true and beautiful. And those views clashed and they fragmented. And sometimes couples do this so much that they fragment into divorce. And the whole family is fragmented. When we, when we fragment like this, we don't just marginalize others. We also, what we're doing, we're, we're marginalizing them by elevating ourselves. And it gets back to me, me, me. And we make our name great at the expense of making God's name great. We, we impose our vision of the good life on those around us instead of living in light of God's vision of the good life. We could summarize it like this. Our life is to be about the good reign of Jesus. Fragmentation is about the good reign of me. Now, it's no surprise that we see fragmentation in the world. It's no no surprise that those people that are not believers and not followers of Jesus, they don't have the Holy Spirit living in them. They don't have that perfect image of God uh, indwelling them. It's no surprise that they fragment and they divide like this. But isn't it great that this fragmentation is completely absent in the church. Isn't that amazing? Can I get an amen? I mean, it's simply not here. Ah, if only it was so. We take one way of doing church, 
and we say it's the best way. And then we marginalize those who don't do church the way we do. They don't fit our definition of of what is good and right and true and beautiful in church. We become intolerant of those who don't fit our definition, and we start a new denomination. And as we we gather, by the way, this all happened to me early in my ministry. I mean, I didn't start a new denomination. Um, I was part of a group where this happened, and it was just so sad. Because then we find out that our definition of the good life begins to differ with with those within our new denomination. And so we split off from those and start another new denomination. And we marginalize those we left behind. Many years ago, we lived in a small town of some 7,000 people. I went through the phone book one time because I noticed there was a lot of churches in town. And I counted, and I just did Bible teaching churches, not, not cults or anything else. And I counted some 35 churches in a town of 7,000 people. That means every church would only have to have 200 people on a Sunday morning for the entire town to be in church. Why? Because every little nuance of difference in belief or style turned into a church split and a tiny group of people that were not about to worship with anybody else who loved Jesus. And you have all these little tiny groups fragmented. And what's that say to the unsaved community? They'll know we are Christians by our church splits and how we fragment into tiny little islands of selfishness. Now, in order to heal fragmentation, we must unite under God's definition of what is good and true and beautiful and only his definition. God's vision of the good life is that every single person who has ever lived will bow before Jesus and proclaim him as Lord of lords and King of kings. Romans 14 says, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. That will happen someday. The good life for each of us should be to center our lives around the person of Jesus in such a way that others are drawn to the person of Jesus. They're drawn to center their lives around the, the good name of Jesus. And, and, and as we do that, we move toward this universal unity and proclaiming Jesus as Lord. We move the kingdom forward one hammer dent at a time. We, we, we break into the fallen world a little bit at a time, just chipping away at it. Now let's, let's talk about this unity. Unity, what, what's unity? We, it's not uniformity. We're not, we're not talking about everybody looking exactly alike and acting alike and, and believing alike, like, like, a, like, we're, like we're all Star Wars stormtroopers storm or something. We're all different, and that's good. We need to celebrate our different uh, uh, ethnicities and our different languages and our, our different colors and our different cultures and our different backgrounds. But unity in Jesus is agreeing that Jesus is the very Son of God, that he is the only way, the only truth, the only life. Unity is agreeing with others that we are so passionate about the good rule of Jesus on earth in all people that we will give up our rights, we'll give up our will, we'll give up our dreams, we'll give up our ways so that the community can unite and demonstrate to the world God's vision of the good life not my own. I have a good friend. Uh, I'm going to call him Pete. 
He attends Cornerstone. Uh, we were talking a few weeks ago, Todd, Pete, Christian, uh, some others. And, and I was cautioning Todd in this conversation. I said, be careful not to let people think that you hold to this particular theological view. And everybody started laughing. And I wasn't sure why. And they said, well, Pete holds that view. And I looked at him and says, really? Did, did I know that? He goes, yeah, we had lunch a while back and talked about it. Um, I think the cool thing is I had totally forgotten it. I'm not sure if that's cool or not because I don't remember much of anything anymore. But I had, I had totally forgotten it. I didn't hold it against him. It wasn't a big enough issue to divide over. Um, we didn't fragment because he held that view and I held this view. Pete and I are very united, even as we don't agree on certain issues. We are united over the fact that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King, Jesus is Savior, and he is the only one. Now, let me just caveat that a little bit. There are some issues that we must divide over. Jesus said he has not come to bring peace but a sword. When the gospel confronts culture, it will cause fragmentation. But that's, that's good fragmentation because we're trying to break into culture and break into the world with the truth of Jesus. But God's ultimate goal for the fullness of time is to unite everything, the stars, the solar system, political systems, nations, languages, ethnic groups, all fragmentation will be healed under the good rule of Jesus. That's what things are moving toward. That's where things will end. And we as a church need to be a foretaste of that unity, that ultimate unity when everything is restored in new creation. Listen to a few passages uh, that talk about unity. I just want to walk through several of these verses um, and just see how the Bible has this, this emphasis on unity. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. John 17, this is Jesus' prayer uh, on the night before he he died. He said, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us, those who will believe. That's us. That's you and me today. What's he asked? That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Why? So the world would know that you sent me and loved them even as you love me. And then 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul's writing to this church, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Ephesians 2.14, Paul's talking about Jews and Gentiles, two groups that were about as fragmented as you could get. And he says, for he himself, Jesus is our peace, who has made us both one, Jew and Gentile, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And then in Ephesians 4, he says, there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. First Peter 3, Peter says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, and so on. All over the Bible, this call for unity and oneness, it's coming. Jesus will fully bring it in. 
but we work toward it now by pursuing God's vision of what is good and right and beautiful and not our own. Each effort that we make towards, towards uniting and, and getting past our differences is like, like the blacksmith's hammer hitting that steel bar and making a little dent that causes it, causes it to bend a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more each time. But we are all so different. We're different colors, different languages. We have different ideas about music and clothes and church and whose car to drive. Paul helps us navigate these waters in Colossians 3, 11 through 14, when he says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. See the unity here? See the unity? We, we are united in Christ. Of course, there's still Greeks and Jews. But that doesn't matter in Christ. And so how then do we, do we live in light of these differences? Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. What? Compassionate hearts. Kindness. Humility. Meekness. Patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. When we do fragment, when we do have these differing views of, of what the good life looks like, we forgive each other and we keep going. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Jesus told his disciples, and he told us in John 13, 35, people will know that we are true followers of Jesus by our love for one another. Not by how we fragment, not by how we divide and fight and split, but they'll know we're believers by our love for one another. So what do we do with all this? This has been a very important series um, in understanding who we are as humans, who God is, how we interact with these different aspects of humanity. But what do I do with it? Uh, I want to suggest four uh, takeaways from today's message and from the last five weeks. Four things that we can kind of take home and, 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 and live out. First of all, um, consider every person as one created in the image of God. That truth needs to permeate our thinking about euthanasia, about abortion, about different cultures, about different languages, different ethnicities, race relations, about the handicapped, about politicians, about your spouse, about your unruly neighbor, about your boss. All of these people, every person is made in the image of God. And God seeks to make his presence known on earth through people. Secondly, we need to define what is good and right and beautiful the way God defines it. We need to root out our own view of the good life and replace it with God's view of the good life. Some of our cherished dreams may need to die. 
God may ask us to move to Southeast Asia or Papua or Japan for the purpose of making dents in the culture and the world cultures of those places. Dents that move us a little bit closer to seeing every nation and language and, and tongue bend the knee to Jesus. Or maybe we aren't called to those places, but we just stay put in our homes, our neighborhoods, our places of work, our grocery stores. And we make little dents in that steel bar of culture right here in Simi Valley. And third, we need to keep bending culture one dent at a time. We do that by putting Jesus at the center of our lives. Not putting ourselves there, but putting, putting Jesus there. We do that by being what God intended the church to be. Like Todd said last week, be the church. We need to be the church in our culture, in our neighborhoods, in our world. And, and, and as we do that, we keep advancing the kingdom, making dents in the culture, moving the kingdom forward, uh, slowly, gradually engaging with the fallen world to make it a little less fallen until someday Jesus will come and unite everything completely. That means we love one another. We admonish one another. We, we seek to do everything in our power to move one another towards Christ-likeness. It's Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, where, where the writer says, considering how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting meeting together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Keep bending culture one dent at a time. It's moving my neighbor's trash cans off the curb. We have this thing. Trash, trash morning is Thursday morning, and every Thursday morning after the trash goes through, if, if he's up first or if I'm up first, he moves my cans up, I move his cans up. I rarely see him, but it's a little, a little dent. It's a little act of kindness. The neighbor on the other side can't stand this guy, and so believe me, they would never do that. But that's something I can do. It's doing the dishes or cleaning the bathroom when it's not my day to do it. You do it anyway, an act of kindness. It's dropping off a bag of groceries to someone you know is in need. It's fixing a broken door handle for a widow. It's telling your wife, I'll put the kids to bed tonight. You go take a bath. It's paying for someone else's meal in a restaurant. This happened to us recently. We were eating... And I kept waiting for the waiter to bring, bring the check, and I was getting annoyed and irritated because my vision of the good life is promptness. Finally, I got his attention and said, we'll just, we'll just pay on the way out. He goes, oh, it's already paid for. What? Yeah, those people at that table up there, they paid, they paid for you on the way out. I figured you knew them or something, and so you're, you're good to go. We were blown away. Little act of kindness that that moved us, just, just, just made a little dent in this fallen, selfish world. Each of these little dents moves us closer to what God's vision of what is good and right and beautiful. Fourthly, celebrate the small dents. Never think that what we do doesn't matter. I mean, how small of a thing is it to move my neighbor's trash cans off the curb? But that's, those, are, those are worth celebrating. 
Those are little acts of moving, moving, moving things forward. Those are little acts of demonstrating to the world what God's vision of good and right and beautiful and true is. As the church is the church, as we seek to unify under the good rule of Jesus, we bend that rod of culture just a little bit more. We advance the kingdom just a little bit more. We, we, we make a foray into the fallen world just a little bit. Nothing is too small. No, no action, no, no uh, ministry, no service is too small. All of those things combined as the church is the church moves us forward. Listen as I read this, this scene from Revelation. This is where fragmentation is healed. We're unified as one people under the good rule of Jesus, all around the throne worshiping the Lamb. Listen to this. This is John writing, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes, peoples and languages, every segment of human population, all of those made in the image of God, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Unified in worship of Jesus, And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Lord Jesus, we look forward to the day when we'll be part of that huge crowd of people. I think we'll all have good seats. We'll all be able to see the Lamb. And we'll celebrate the name of Jesus, the good name of Jesus. And we'll sing and we'll worship and we'll be, we'll be standing besides all, beside all kinds of people, all kinds of human beings, Ninevites and Republicans and Democrats and whites and blacks and short people and tall people. We will be one in worship. So Lord, I pray that we will be the church now, that we will move towards that oneness, move towards that unity, move towards that goal, which all history is moving toward anyway, that we would be the church Lord, by your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do that. You would speak to each of us. In Jesus' name and for your glory, amen.